Now that we've been walking uh, through the second letter of Peter, as he is nearing the end of his life, um, I have had this tremendous privilege to walk through during the week and just look in detail at the words that he has put on a page. And as we have been going through these over the last several weeks, I think you have, as well as I have, have been greatly challenged by Peter's love for Jesus and his great love for the church and his desire for the church uh, to be protected uh, from false doctrine. And as we come to these words in Second Peter, he is likely um, in his 70s. He's probably in his early 70s now, and he has walked with Christ for a long time. He had the unique privilege to literally walk with Christ physically. Then he was there the day Christ ascended into heaven, and then on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit entered into believers and they began to preach, he had this great privilege now to not only physically walk, but now to walk by faith and no longer sight. He had walked with sight, but now he's walking with faith. And so he is nearing the end of his life, and we will see these words from him today. And so whatever may come for him, he's embracing it. And he loves what he has experienced and he wants to communicate one last thought, one last passionate plea to these people that he has poured his life into to remind them to walk with Christ no matter what. And as we come to the last half of chapter 1, his heart is incredibly refreshing when you compare it to the spiritual setting that you see uh, in the American church today. So often pastors and spiritual leaders focus on the longevity and the success of their ministry, often at the expense of what's good for the church. And we're going to see today, Peter is not concerned about his longevity. He knows it's about to be over, and his last concern is for the good of the church. The church would move forward after he is gone. When you go back in your mind and go back and just understand uh, what was taking place in the first century... Um, I look across this room and you either have a tablet that has an electronic version of all of the Bible or you have a paper version or you have a phone this morning that's got it on there. You go back 2,000 years ago and they don't have what we have in our laps today. Um, The New Testament was being written. There were letters that were around and they were passing those letters around to the churches. But what they had was the Old Testament written word. But they didn't have all of this 27 books of the New Testament put together. And so they relied on the foundation and the teaching of the apostles. As a matter of fact, Paul establishes that for us. He says the church has been built on the foundation of the apostles. And so as they were sent out, as they were teaching, as they were starting churches, they were communicating what Jesus had taught them all along. And so as they started the churches, this communication that Jesus had given them, they were teaching the churches, and then the letters were began, began to be written, and the churches were utilizing um, those things. And so we're going to see today, the last half of chapter 1, Peter's going to now begin this great focus on the Word of God. And so in light of all of that, that they, don't ha- they didn't have what you and I have in our laps today to look at and literally read, I just want to remind us, There's been such a tremendous attack on the Scripture uh, in today's world. Though they didn't have the written word, the church was being led by the Holy Spirit. And we can trust that what was being written and what was being established by those who had walked with Christ was reliable. Secondly, they had the Old Testament. The Old Testament's point was 
to point toward the coming of Jesus. And so early on, the church relied on the Old Testament to show the beauty of the coming of Jesus. And then they also had the teachings of Jesus, again, that were establishing of the church. So they had those three very important things for the church. I, wanna, I want you to keep your finger in Second Peter chapter 1, but then I want you to go to the book of Genesis just for a moment, chapter 3. And I want to talk as we begin this morning about a real enemy. And I want to remind us this morning that he doesn't really have a new plan. He has the same plan that he has had from the very beginning in his trickery and deceit in regard to God's word as he um, deals with us. Genesis 1 and 2 reveal this incredible beauty of God's creation. Man is living in an intimate relationship with God. Sin has not entered into the world. Look with me in Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And so he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, Your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So I just want to just pause for a moment because it's critical to to be reminded this morning of the strategy of the enemy. Because what we see happening in 2 Peter 1 is exactly what is happening in Genesis chapter 3. So hear my heart this morning. Satan has no new strategy. His strategy has always been the same, and that is to attack God's word and to attack the goodness of God. And that is exactly what he does in the garden here. So he says to Eve, did God really say, attacking the accuracy of what God had actually said? Not only does he attack the accuracy of what God says, but he comes to Eve and says, how can you accept what God has said? How can you accept that? Connected with that, he literally denies God's word. And he he says in verse 4, look in verse 4 again, and he just says this, You will not surely die. Well, God said, yeah, you will die if you eat of the fruit. Now notice this attack on the accuracy and the acceptability of God's word and his denial of God's word has already had an effect on Eve. And here's how we know this. Here is what God said. God said, don't eat of the fruit. He didn't say anything about touching it. It's a good thing to not touch it. But watch what happens. And this is always the great danger for the church. That we begin to add to what God has said and what God has established. So already in the garden, as he attacks God's word, how can you accept this? You're not going to die. She speaks and says, well, we can't eat of it and we can't even touch it. And then he says these words. He says, listen, 
God is so holding out on you that he's not really good because if he was really good, he would allow you to know good and evil. And so watch this. Nothing new happens in Satan's strategy because he knows this, that if we can doubt that God is good, we will keep ourselves away from him and it will bring instability into our lives. And if we doubt that God is good, it will also affect when we read his word because we will know how can I rely on this as well. If I can't trust his character, how can I trust his word? When you come to the New Testament church, as Peter writes, 2 Peter 1, the church has been around for three, a little over three decades now. It has been alive. It has been flourishing. And now Gnosticism has arisen and it has made its way into the church. And so Peter is addressing to these believers that he, that he loves and he knows. And he's reminding them there's a real enemy and I wanna, he, he wants to remind them. And we will see clearly over the next three weeks as we finish up chapter 1 that there's a real enemy at hand and there's a real issue at hand. And that's the second thing I want to talk about this morning. So go now to 2 Peter 1, and we will look at the text here in just a moment. The real issue at hand today, and it's the same one since the Garden of Eden, and that is the attack on the Word of God. And there's a great battle in the church today. And if I were to ask the question and get feedback today, um, if I were to ask this question, what do you think is the greatest threat in the church today there would be a number of things that we would throw out there is it the continued rise of secular humanism Um, is it chaotic godless government that we are seeing is it a loss of focus in the church today where in some places social justice has risen to equality with and, and sometimes has even replaced the call of the great commission and to teach the words of god is the great issue of the church today the ever-present reality, the constant push of evolutionary thought and all of these kinds of things. And all of those things, I think, are of deep concern. Would you agree? They're realities I have to deal with. But I think the primary reality and the great challenge that faces the church today is are you and I going to believe the truth of God's Word? Because everything comes back to the reality of that. Because if we can't trust this, where is there any kind of stability in life? If you really think about that in a logical sense, it's just where do we know? Because if we can't trust on this, and there's one of the big attacks, and one of the not uh, this coming weekend, we are taking our students to an apologetics conference, and the whole thing is preparing the students to deal with all of the attacks directed at Scripture um, that are prevalent in our world today. Because if, if man, if, here's one of the texts. This has been touched by man's hands and copied for thousands of years. Man is sinful. How can you trust man? So how can, if man has touched this, how can we trust that this is reliable in the way that it has come to us? Well, I'm pretty simplistic in my view, and I know there's a number of different arguments about that, and I'm not going to do that today. But if my God can speak the world into existence in six days, I think he can take care of this. He can get it to us in a way that we can trust the accuracy and the authenticity of his word. So I think this is the great issue at hand, and it's the great issue that Peter is going to deal with. 
And I believe if we lose this battle in the church in the days ahead, I believe that Christianity will be deeply wounded where it will continue to be marginalized even more to the outer fringes of our culture than it currently is. But I have this great confidence, and I think you do too, because I think the Word of God bears it out, is that His Word endures through all generations. It's not going to fade away regardless of us because His Word is eternal. My proof of this for me is this drifting and the reality that this is the real issue is from 2004, 2008, I lived in Europe. Europe was a place, and the place that I lived in Europe was the country of Germany, which is in most ways, not all of them, because there were many influential people, Germany in many ways was the birthplace of the Protestant Reformation. And you can go in every city, and I was in many, many cities of Germany, and the churches are a ghost town today. Why? What happened when God opened the eyes of Martin Luther and he stood and said, no, it's God's Word and it's grace alone, faith alone, God alone, Scripture alone. What, what happened? What happened over the last 500 years in Europe is this, is Europe drifted away from what was birthed and came alive again in the Protestant Reformation. And that was... The Scripture reveals the glory of who God is, and it becomes the light and the pathway for us to walk. And so the importance of the inspired Word of God is critical for us in our lives. And so Peter has been establishing for us this great salvation we have, this great responsibility in this salvation with the ladder of virtues that we talked about last week, and these things are critical for us as we move um, forward. So let's look in the text, and bear with me, I'm going to repeat it all again, and, uh, and you will see why. All right, Second Peter, verse 1 of chapter 1. Follow along, please. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. <clears throat> with virtue, with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And here he gets, he makes a turn here. And here's what he says. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. And I think it right, he says, 
as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. So this is critical for us. Three times in the text, he says this. I want you to remember things, and I'm telling you stuff you've heard before. So twice he uses the word remember. Once he uses the word recall. We do this over and over in the church. If you've grown up in church, how many times have you heard some of the stories? We hear them over and over. If you've been at this church, what's the one thing in this room that I point to more than anything else? That right there. And I repeat it, and I point to it, and I point to it. Why? Because there's a danger in our lives, just like has happened in Europe that had this great transformation 500 years ago, and you can hardly find evidence of it anymore. Though it is there, there are strong churches that are there. But what once was powerful and moving is now just not alive anymore. And here's the great danger is we forget. We forget. You may have been to Holocaust museums. I don't know if you've been to one before. I've been to the one in D.C. And the reason there are things like that, you can go to Jerusalem. Evidently, Jerusalem has also just a phenomenal Holocaust museum. And the school kids in Israel are required every year to go to the Holocaust museum. Why? Because it's to remind them of what happened. History does what? It repeats itself, does it not? You know why? Because we're stupid. We're just stupid. And we just do the same things over and over and over and over again. So one of the primary roles of the church is what Peter is doing here. And that is to repeat the things that are critical. This remembering theme is actually common throughout the Bible. On the On the night of the Passover, as they were preparing for the Passover, God tells Moses, and Moses instructs the people, we are going to, to, there's going to be this new thing that we're going to do moving forward, and we're going to celebrate. This is the first night that's coming, but moving forward, every year, we're going to celebrate the Passover because it's going to remind us that God rescued us out of Egypt. We've been walking through the book of Joshua. They are at the Jordan River. God divides the Jordan River. The nation walks across. Each man, a leader of the tribe, is to grab a big stone. They, the indication in Joshua there early on those early chapters, once they got across the river, they piled these stones as a stones of what? Remembrance. There's also a picture there that it looks like there were also stones that Joshua put in the river Um, where the priests were standing, and so there were almost, it looks like there were two sets of stones that were established there. Why? So that you would remember, so they would remember what God did in those moments. Moses instructs the nation again one last time. The book of Deuteronomy, Deutero in Hebrew, means second time. Moses is not going to get to go in the promised land, and so he's going to repeat. And so Deuteronomy is a repeating of the law one last time before this generation goes in. So in the Old Testament, God is calling His people to remember. 
You remember on the night that Jesus was betrayed, they were in the upper room. He broke bread and he poured wine in a cup and he said, do this in what? In remembrance of me. Do this. Why? Because if we don't do this and we're not reminded, we forget about the reality. Jesus said one of the great roles of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14, verse 26 is, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. So remembering is to be a faithful, disciplined practice in the church. So let's look now, look at with me in verse 12. And I want to talk about this verse. And we're going to spend most of our time dealing with with verse 12. So in light of everything that Peter has said, this great salvation, verses 3 and 4, our response, ladder of virtues that are here that we talked about last week that I still have up here for us. Peter says these words, Therefore, in light of this great salvation, in light of this responsibility to live out our lives, he says, Therefore, I intend always... To remind you of these qualities. Though you know them and you are established in the truth that you have come to know and the truth that you have. And so look at the words there. He says, therefore I intend. Peter's saying, this is my intention. I am going to, I, I have this burden and I'm going to continue to remind you of things that I've already told you. And so this, this sincerity from his heart is that he wants them to know the great reality of the truth of Scripture, and he doesn't want them to doesn't want those things to be lost from their mind, because if they're lost from their mind, they're not going to walk in them anymore, and they will not pass them on to the next generation. So Peter's aim was that they would remain in good doctrine, because Gnosticism had drifted in, and Gnosticism was making a mockery of the life and work of Christ. Gnosticism denied the resurrection of Jesus. It denied a physical resurrection of us in the end times. And so Peter is addressing these issues in this letter. So watch what he says. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. And I want to go back to our ladder here. What qualities? These qualities that he's just mentioned to us. So he says... Here is the reality for you. He says, I want you to get this. I want you to know it. I want this to be in your bones. So he's bones. And so he says, for this very reason, you make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. And virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with agape with God's love. And now we come to this and he says this. And so, therefore, I intend to remind you always of these qualities. That you've got to live here. You've got to live here and you've got to stay here. You live these things. He said it. If you will practice these things, you will not fall. I don't know about you, but I don't want to fall. I want, I want to stay strong. And so he says, if you'll practice these things you will not fall. So I'm going to remind you of these things. I'm going to point to this. I'm going to point to this. We're going to repetitively say Psalm 119 over and over again. Why do we need to, Sunday after Sunday, year after year now, we've been doing this for years now. Why do we need to do this? Because 
we freshly need reminding of what life is about and what we need. And so we hold the banner up, and I don't have a banner today. I tried to find one, and I wanted to, I wanted to wave a banner this morning and just say, I'm going to wave this banner before us. You need to have the banner. Let's wave the banner that reminds us we stay true, and let's just continue to tell the great stories, the greatest story that can be told, that there's a sovereign God who is so holy and righteous that we don't understand it, We are so sinful that we don't understand it, that we think we're actually good. And we're so confused about those two great realities that we lose sight of the beauty of what has been done for us in salvation. That He took our sin and He gave us His righteousness and glory be to His name. That we no longer are dead, but we are alive now. We no longer can't see, but we can see now. We we once couldn't breathe, now we can breathe. We once couldn't walk, and now... We can walk, and we cannot forget it, so we remind ourselves, we remind ourselves, we remind ourselves of this great thing. I was a great free throw shooter back in the day, because somebody told me when I was a kid that if you want to shoot good free throws in the game, you got to practice, and so I'd get in my driveway, and my dad hooked up lights at nighttime so that I could practice free throws. And for about seven or eight years, I practiced 100 free throws every single day in my driveway, every day. Well, what happened was when I got into games in high school, in those moments, though there was a crowd there, there was such repetition in my life that I knew how to bounce the ball. I knew where my legs needed to go. I knew what my arm needed to do. And I made my free throws. I shot, I shot about 92% of my free throws in, in my high school time. And it all came back to, not because I was great, but I think, well, maybe I was, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding, just kidding, just kidding. Um, <laughs> it's March Madness time, so. Um, but I practiced so much, it was natural. It's just like playing the piano or playing an instrument clarinet girl is over here okay hello hello she loves that it's just like playing an instrument it's just like playing golf josh play golf there's a repetition there's a muscle memory to those things that when you're there you know what to do and it's practice and what's what peter's saying it's no different spiritually practice these things over and over remind one another of the great realities of what it's been done for us and if we'll practice these qualities peter says you will never fall And so therefore, what should we do? Peter says, well, here's what you should do. Do what I do. I'm going to remind you always of things I've already told you. And the reason I'm going to remind you always of things I've already told you is they easily just drip out of our mind. And so I need to remind you. You need to remind me. You remind each other. We all remind one another of the great realities of the doctrine and the truth that the Scripture has for us. And so to keep us... From forgetting, we need to be reminded. And so there is this great task outlined in Scripture for us to encourage one another in the Scriptures and to encourage one another by telling the stories and pouring out the stories over and over and over again. And I think we need to surround ourselves with those kind of people who practice that as well. The great battleground in our lives is our mind. It's, it's such a great battleground. And the greatest weapon that we can have in regard to temptation, in regard to 
uh, false teaching and false doctrine that is there is to have the key tool to fight against the lies of the enemy, which is the Word of God. Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, what is the sword of the Spirit? It's the Word of God. It's the one offensive weapon. It's the same offensive weapon that Jesus used in the temptation sequence. Satan came at him with Scripture. Jesus came back at Satan with accurate Scripture. Not manipulating of Scripture, but accurate Scripture. And he used it in his battle against Satan. We know this text, we've heard it before, let me just repeat it. Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the what? The renewing of your mind. The renewing of your mind. You know, Mary, the mother of Jesus, practiced something when the angel came and spoke God's words to her of what God was going to do. It's really beautiful, and I think it's something that you and I ought to do with the Scripture. Luke 2, 2, 19 says this. If that wasn't confusing, Luke 2, 19. (laughs) But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Just thought about and thought about and thought about what had been told her. And so he says these words. So therefore, I intend always to remind you of things that I've already told you. And then he says this, though you know them. So he knows these people. He's not getting on to them. He says, listen, I've told you these things. You know these things. Now listen to me. I think this is absolutely critical. He tells them, you've come to know this. They're in your head. They're in your heart. You're living them. You're battling against Gnosticism, this false teaching that is there. You've got these at least in your head. And I believe that what can be recalled from the heart and the mind is the most effective way to deal with things. Much better than having to go to a filing cabinet. Much better than having to go to a hard drive. Much better than having to go to notes or having to go to a website. Because here's the reality. If they are in our mind and the Word of God is in our heart, then they just naturally come out because here's the reality the enemy is not going to wait while we look up something but if it's there and we just know it because we're memorizing we're pondering and we're thinking and we're treasuring those kind of moments those things can come out of our lives psalm 119 11 i have stored up your word in my heart that i might not sin against you philippians 4 8 finally brothers Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure and lovely and commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think, 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 ponder, contemplate, think about these things. And I believe the entirety of God's Word has to be our aim. You know, one of the great challenges um, for me because I've been here for 10 years now, and for those of you who've heard me, unfortunately or unfortunately for 10 years, whatever the case may be, the great challenge for me is to not go back on um, or, or trying to move to a place where I'm trying to be so creative about God's Word that um, we lose the impact of what is actually said. And I think one of the great strategies of great preaching and good preaching is just proclaim what's there. Just tell what's there. 
Just trust what's there has this great power that is connected with it. If a church only does topical preaching, after a while you just run out of topics and you start repeating yourselves. But if you do like we do here, walk word by word, verse by verse, sentence by sentence, and phrase by phrase, you just walk through the scripture like that, you can never exhaust this. John MacArthur um, is somebody who has phenomenally impacted my life. He just finished 50 years at the church he's at in California. And he has yet, after 50 years, to preach through the whole Bible. After 50 years. And they have Sunday night service, too. And he's not exhausted it. So I went back in my mind. I have my shelf in here in my office. I have two shelves that are just full of all the sermons that I preached here in 10 years. And this is all that we've exhausted in 10 years. James, Philippians, Jonah, Mark, 1 Peter, Hebrews, Revelation, Nehemiah, and Ezra. That's all we've done. Well, there's 66 books of the Bible. We are not gonna, we're not going to exhaust this. And so Peter is just saying this. And by the way, a lot of this stuff is, is repetitive. I think, for me, it's the beauty of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is there's a repetitive nature to it, particularly the first three books, but with a little bit different perspective freshly and so this repetitive nature of the scripture it's biblical and it's important the problem is and in today's world is too many pastors have fallen into this idea that something new is needed and so they get all crazily creative and they take things too far and the heart of the word gets messed up in that and the other aspect of that is is that the people in the churches have itching ears and want something new and i just think let's just love the ancient text let's just love it because it's alive and it's not there's nothing that needs to be added to it it is everything that you and i need and sometimes as we deal with the text and we deal with people we sometimes don't correct one another, and the reason we don't correct one another in some of the things that we say about things is because we love one another. But we've got to call each other to right doctrine, to right things, and, and so it's really critical for us to continue to do this. I love one time Jesus said this in John chapter 5. Listen to Jesus here. 539 of John's Gospel. You search the Scriptures, speaking to the Jews, Because you think that in them you have eternal life. And then he says this, It is they that bear witness about me. They are pointing to me. And you think that through the Scriptures you're going to get eternal life. Well, they're pointing to me. And then Jesus says this, And they're pointing to me, And yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And so Jesus says the purpose of the Scriptures is to bear witness of Christ. And the purpose of the scriptures is to bring us to Jesus so that we, you and I would have a deeper life in him. All right, we're done with verse 12, okay? <clears throat> so I want to talk now just for a few minutes about the rightness, the readiness, the rousing, and the rewarding risk of faith. Does that sound good? Rick likes that, yes. I've got to get all my R's in there, Rick. So let me talk about the rightness. So here's what Peter says. So he's just told us. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. 
Because if you will practice these qualities, you will never fall. And so therefore, I intend to always remind you of these qualities. Though you know them, I've taught them to you, you know them, and you are established in the truth that you have. So then he says, I think it is right. So here's what he's saying. The most right thing I can do, the best thing that I can do to you, that I, because I love you, is to call you back to the things that I've already told you. You don't need anything brand new. You need to be reminded of the things that you know and that you were already established in. So he says, this is the most right thing that I can do for you. And so he says, I'm going to tell you the same things. And then he says this phrase. So he says, I think it is right as long as I am in my body. Your translation may say tent. This word body, this word tent, literally in the Greek is the image of a tent or a house that can be folded up and carried or folded up and left behind and discarded. Now listen to that and think about that for a moment. Here's Peter, 72 years old. He's walked with Christ for a long time. He's writing for a second time to people that he loves Loves these people. He's poured his heart into them. And he says, the best thing that I can do to you is remind you of things that I've already told you. Because if you won't forget those things, they will prepare you for the Gnostic rise that is going on, is battling, has infiltrated the church. This is what you need more than anything else. Because that will make you ready. And so here's the readiness. He said, the, the most right thing I can do is to remind you of these things. And as long as I am in this body, as long as I am here, I'm going to continue to do this. So he says this, as long as I'm here, I'm going to be ready just to tell you the same things that I've told you already. And there's a beauty here. I want you to go to 2 Corinthians just for a moment. I want to show you. Let's read a text there in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 1. So 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1, he says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. In the heavens. For in this tent, this body, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee, so we are always of good courage, and we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the tent, from the body, and at home with the Lord. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Watch this. He just says, I think it's right. As long as I'm in this body, my body's groaning and longs to be with Jesus. And, and, and I, I want that to happen. I want that to take place. Paul is affirming that. Peter is affirming this reality. And it's an incredible reality. Seneca was an unbeliever. And he used to mock Christians back in the day. And he called them um, those of the folly. He 
called Christianity Folly. And he said this about Christians. Christians and idiots do not fear death. And then he said, why can't reason attain to the same assurance folly has? It's a beautiful statement. And here's where Peter is. He's like, I'm about to fold up this tent and I'm going to leave it here. And I'm moving on, and I'm moving on, and I'm going to be clothed with a heavenly dwelling. And so while I'm here, I'm away from him, but I, but, but I want to be there with him. But while I'm here, I'm going to make it my aim to please him that Peter talks about. And so he says this. He says, listen, it's right for me to remind you of these things. I am ready to go on, but I'm ready to tell you these things, and I'm going to rouse you up. So he says, it is, I think it is right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. It's that idea of this. You ever gone in to wake up a teenager on a Saturday morning? You got to get them up. It's one of the most impossible things you can do in the world. You don't go, Cody, wake up. You got to go over there and you got to shake, do you not? You got to pound on the bed. You got to shake. That's what Peter, that's that idea of this word here. It means to stir up. It means to rouse. It means to, to awaken, to shake. And so he says this, listen, I think it is right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder. And the reality is this, is that sadly the church needs rousing at times. The culture, this is not a call for the culture. This is a call to the church that sometimes falls asleep and forgets what has been said to her and what she is called to be in relationship. You see, a faith that's not put into practice is a lacking faith. It's a faith that's not strong. And so we put this. And this idea of here, rousing here, is the kind of memory that's prompted by somebody else. And it's important for us. And I think Peter knows what's up. And we ought to embrace what he has written here because I think he knows it. So not only does he think it is right, not only is he ready to move on, he's also ready to communicate this. He wants to rouse them. He wants to stir them up. And lastly, he says, there's an incredibly rewarding aspect of walking by faith in Jesus. And so he says, in verse 14, he says, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Listen to what Peter says. <clears throat> There's no expiration date for living for Christ and loving the church. As he looked at his life, as long as I'm here, there's not a date that says, okay, it's time to retire and just take it easy and play golf every day, which probably would be nice, you know, but, but there's no expiration date. We are to, until our last days, be passionate. Can I talk about Larry for a second? I didn't ask you permission. Can I do so? Larry Metcalf lived that, and so did Dave Dominoski. Just to the very end, faith in God, faith in God, faith in God. And they knew there was a reward that was going to happen and take place in their lives because they knew Jesus. There was no expiration date. Peter lived this way. Paul lived this way. Faithful to the very end. 
Dave and Larry showed that to us. Monica showed that to us. Just, I remember sitting by Monica's bed when she breathed her last breath. And she just knew she was going to step from this tent. It was just going to be folded up. And she was going to go and she was going to be with Jesus. Strong assurance that's there. So there's a great reward and a great hope. We do not grieve and we do not fear like the world does. This is our passing through place. Our passing through place. So he says there, it's going to be soon. And so he says in 15, last part, and I'm going to make every effort, and I will make every effort after my departure, that you may be able at any time to recall these things. Now watch what he says here. Great leadership principle if you have spiritual leadership. It's a great lesson for me. And I think the apostles modeled this. I think the early church leaders modeled this. They did not panic as they lost their lives as martyrs. They didn't go... What is the church going to do that we, the apostolic fathers, are not going to be around anymore? You know what they had? They knew this. They were used by God in that generation to establish the church and to establish the writing of Scripture. And here's what Peter's saying here. I'm a, I'm, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as the Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. John 21, Jesus told him, this is what's going to happen to you. So Peter's known this day is coming. It's coming for him. Now it's knocking on the door. Peter, it's soon. It's imminent. It's here. It's about to happen. Here it is. And so here he is, and he just says this. Watch this. When I'm gone after my departure, I'm trusting... Watch this. I'm trusting in what's been written down for you that you will be able to recall these things and they will be everything that you need. You don't need me to stay around. You know, the, the great hope of my ministry is um, Casting Crowns has a song out right now called Leave a Legacy. It's beautiful, the heart of that. And it's that idea of... <clears throat> Not that people would remember us, but I think those in spiritual leadership, and I think churches should have this idea, we do want to leave a legacy, not that remembers us, but the legacy is is that people would continue to remember Jesus and walk in His truth. That's the true legacy. Not us. Um, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go um, at some particular point in time, as we all are, we're going to leave this life and and it's, it's the things that we did for him that are going to last. And so here's what Peter's saying. And so here's the reality. I'm about to be gone. Jesus told me I'm about to be gone. I believe what he told me. I know it's coming. And so I'm going to make every effort so that after my departure comes, you can be reminded of these things because the greatest thing I can do for you is that you would recall the things that I have taught you. There are many people I read this week in my preparation who think that in some ways Peter may have had in mind the gospel of Mark. We, uh, Matthew, Mark, if you'll read the gospel of Mark, um, Peter is the dominant 
person in there outside of Jesus. And we know that um, from church history that Peter and Mark spent um, evidently quite a bit of time together. And so likely Peter dictated the story of the Gospels and Mark wrote it down and it has come to us in what we know as the Gospel of Mark. And so some people believe that he is saying, um, I'm, I'm going to give you something that you can recall what I've told you. So we know of First Peter and we know of Second Peter. Possibly he has in mind here the Gospel of Mark. I looked at all of the other writers of the New Testament. There's not a whole lot of them. Um, James, Jude, John, uh, Paul, and Peter, Mark. Not for sure who wrote Hebrews. Um, I lean more toward Paul, but whatever the case is, there's not a whole lot of writers in the New Testament. Do you know that all, all of them say the same thing? They all say the same thing. That it's this, is the key. See, they knew that they didn't need to stay alive for the church to prosper. They knew that there's going to be a written account of all this. And because God's word, God, Paul writes, is breathed out by God, that it's alive, that it lasts, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. So we trust God's word about things. And so the church is called to embrace the words of Scripture as our guide for praise, as our guide for purpose look just for a second because you're there look at second peter chapter 3 verse 15 and 16 we'll get to this at some point in time in the future because we're not in a hurry and count the patience of our lord as salvation just as our beloved brother paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. Watch this, as they do the other scriptures. That last phrase there, as they do the other scriptures, you know what Peter is affirming there? That the writings of Paul are what? Scripture. So already there was an understanding in the early church that these letters that were being written by the apostles were what? They were scripture. They could be trusted. They were reliable. And so we are never to go beyond the need of being reminded. And so Peter's heart is, oh, I'm, I'm retirement age. Church, how are you going to take care of me? He just said this, no. Church, how can I take care of you? And the best thing I can do for you is to remind you of the truth. So why was, must we repeat the same stories, the same doctrine, the same passages over and over again so that they will not slip from our mind and we will fall into heresy. And it's the idea to have a next generation kind of thinking. And Peter has it. And he wants them to know this great reality. So he says, listen, I'm writing some things down for you so that you can recall them. And these things have come to you and I so that we can be reminded of them and that we can help one another Recall them. All right, listen to this. <clears throat> I thought this week about how many Bibles do I own? Have you ever, have you ever looked? 
Now, my profession is this, and so I got scores of them. And uh, in my office in there, I think I got 10 on the shelf. I think we have uh, 12 at home. I've got them on every electronic device that I own. Um, I have constant access and ownership of the Scripture. So I thought this week, with all of this vast array of things that I own and access to the Scripture, from computer, paper versions, other electronic versions, I thought about this in regard to you and I. Is the great danger for us, our familiarity in all of this, it doesn't necessarily lead to a contempt for Scripture, but does it lead to a complacency? You ever seen pictures of Bibles showing up in a Chinese village on YouTube? And they just weep and they hold their Bibles and they kiss them because they've never been able to read in their language the text of Scripture. And I think sometimes for us, we just here in the West, it's just so accessible to us and Oh, yeah, I know that. Grew up in church. Yeah, you know, I was born in my crib at the church, you know, and I was there. And, and I've always been at the church, and I've just always been there. And, and I want to challenge you if that's your testimony. And you think that we think. Let me throw myself in there and not, let me not point so many fingers at you. But let me say this. That we know the scripture so well and we're so acquainted with the stories. I want to challenge all of us. That we would see that as a beautiful thing. Not as a tragedy. That we wouldn't go, oh God, could you give us something new? Come on, it's 2,000 years later. And here's what I think God's heart is with that mindset. I, I am speaking. I've never stopped speaking. Because His Word is alive, this is always alive, and He's always speaking. So when we come in, watch this, every Sunday morning, our prayer is not, oh God, and, I, and I've, I've, in my past, have been, had this mistake, oh Lord, speak to us today. Oh, He's going to speak when His Word is read. So the critical nature is, what are we going to do to respond to this? Now, I've got to close with this, and John, you guys will come up. John, you're in here, right? Oh, there you are back there. Okay. I think nobody understands the forgetting than Peter. So when he, when he writes 12 through 15, boy, he gets it. Because in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And he's like, man, you're, you're Christ, son of the living God. And then the next phrase or next section of verses says this. And from then on, Jesus began to tell them, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed, and they're going to kill me. And Peter grabs him and says, oh, no, 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 that's not happening. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're thinking like a man, you're not thinking like God thinks. Well, they go to Jerusalem. Jesus has this conversation with them, and he, he tells them, yeah, let me just let me just briefly read it real quick. Really powerful so we can hear it. John thirteen, thirty-six through thirty-eight. Simon Peter said, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered them, Where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me after it. And Peter said, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay my life down for you. And Jesus answered, Will you lay you don't want Jesus asking you questions? 
will you lay your life down for me? Truly I say to you, the rooster will crow, will not crow until you have denied me three times. Well, we know. Oh, no, I'm not. I'm not. What does he do? He denies him three times. In Luke twenty-two sixty-two, tragic words. After the third denial, and Peter went into the streets of Jerusalem and he wept bitterly. Jesus had already told him, you're going to do this. In the moment, instead of going, okay, he told me I was going to do this. I'm not going to do this. Oh, I'm going to do it anyway. What happened? Just trickled out of his mind and was gone. John 21, they're in a boat. Jesus shows up. Hey, friends, you caught anything? All night. Caught nothing. Hey, throw your nets out on the other side. So many fish. It's about to break the nets. John says, that's the Lord. That's the Lord. Peter throws off his outer garment and jumps in the water. I don't know if he swims or if he can touch the bottom, but he comes ashore. Jesus has a fire. And Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Lord, you know all things. You know know I love you. You know I love you. Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes. Peter steps into the streets. Spirit-led scripture pouring out of his mouth. Several thousand people come to faith that day. So if you want to learn from somebody who knows what it's like to forget what Jesus has told you, listen to the Apostle Peter. I think it's right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as the Lord himself has told me. So I'm going to make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able to recall these things. And so I'm going to point to this. I'm going to point to this. You've got to point to this. We've got to talk about the same stuff and just go, how awesome is it that God has spoken and we can talk about these things. If you're not coming tonight and you're, Martha, what are the ages? Third through fifth grade? Come tonight. We're going to teach kids, not that you don't know how to teach your kids, but together we're going to teach our third through fifth graders how to use the W-4 and how to study the Scripture on their own. And, and uh, there's a new study of Barna that's just come out. And the most critical aspect for children to learn um, who God is is the parents. It's family greater than the church Um, not that the church isn't great but it's the primary place that God has always established to use the family so I hope you'll come tonight isn't that awesome Peter's heart here well it's really good next week if I'm here Uh, we will get to walk through 17 we're going to look at the transfiguration next week and we're just going to do three verses next week and uh but let's pray.